The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Waves for Thursday, May 30th, the Hot Priest Edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios today, we have Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. What's up? Um, I'll tell you in a minute, but first I want to introduce Rachel. Um, June is out. She is fixing Brexit right now um, <laughs> over in the UK. She's making everything good. And we are joined instead by Slate's Rachel Hampton. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so excited to have you. Um, what's up is that uh, I'm going on a camping trip. That's what's up. <laughs> so right now I'm wearing workwear slash camping wear. Have you ever pulled that off? Just wondering. I think that's like the Brooklyn 2017 look, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's like every day in Brooklyn. I was like, how can I make this happen for myself? Like, find something I can wear to work to record this, but also go what, camping. With what are you wearing? Graders. Um, it's like a black <laughs> jumpsuit, but it's kind of like a like a shitty jumpsuit. Wait, like, that actually like is the Brooklyn nice look. One. I was joking, but that's like fully the look. <laughs> that's definitely glamping aesthetics. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> and sneakers. Mm-hmm. I look like bad. Like I look like I tried too hard but all wrong for the office, you know? Um, but it but I'll but then I'll look a little upscale for camping. Whatever. That's it's what everyone wants for camping is to look upscale. <laughs> That's the balance you want to strike. <laughs> then I did it. I did it. All right. Excellent. Anyway, quick announcement for you guys. Slate Day is coming up very soon. It's on June 8th. Uh, so come see it. There's going to be everything Slate, Political Gap Fest, Trump Cast, Slow Burn. There will be representation from all our awesome shows. And ours will be at 10 a.m. on the High Line with Ms. Cracker and Charlene McRae, which we're very excited about. I know 10 is a little early, but it's actually not that early. So come on out and see us. We would love to meet you. Okay, our topics. First, Curvy Wife Guy is back with a new music video celebrating his own brand of body positivity. We talk about that. Second, plastic surgery for incels. There's been a lot of haunting articles on this topic. And finally, I'm excited to talk about Fleabag Season 2, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's show is back. And then in our Slate Plus segment... Noreen, you want to talk about what we're talking about? We are going to discuss whether it is sexist that people are uh, angry at Elizabeth Warren for making $675 an hour when she was working as a legal consultant. And here's a sneak peek of that segment. It's, she's working, right? Like it's actual work. She, yeah. She's not trading on her fame at that point. She's trading on her knowledge and expertise in a specific subject. Um, so maybe speeches are the wrong analogy, but but speeches and books are similar that way. It's not like people are buying Bernie Sanders' book because he has like a revelatory idea in it. It's because he's Bernie Sanders, so he's just trading off his his fame totally. and his name. So no, it's not like anybody could write a book and, and make a lot <laughs> also, of right. money off it the it, way he does. All right, let's get into Curvy Wife Guy. I love him. Just kidding. I really don't. Okay, Curvy Wife Guy. His real name is Robbie Tripp. He first showed up in 2017 when he posted a picture of himself staring lovingly at his wife, Sarah, in a bathing suit. He wrote that this gorgeous woman he married filled out every inch of her jeans and praised the stretch marks on her booty. And then he wrote, her shape and size won't be the one featured on the cover of Cosmo, but it's the one featured in my life and my heart. Um, that was in 2017. Now he is out with a new music video and a new mantra, My Girl is Chubby Sexy. Let's listen to a second of it before we discuss. My girl chubby sexy. 
Okay. All right. Noreen, why don't you lay out, Noreen, you want to lay out a little bit the history before we get into our own opinions of how he has been digested on the interwebs? Like starting in 2017, you know, he, he's gone through the ringer a little bit. So just just give us what's already out there before we we contribute to that body of work. Well, he's really, yeah, followed the life cycle of the internet. So the first reaction to his post was, I might characterize it as gratitude when yeah. women said that they were grateful to see him praising a body like his wife's women who um, are of similar size to her in particular said like, oh, you you never hear men talking like this about us. This is so nice. Then BuzzFeed um, basically aggregated his post and the praise of him and people had a really strong negative reaction to that piece and they were like this guy really like why curvy wife guy like uh you know he's he's so like cynical his wife is a plus size influencer also like it's a little undermining the way that he's praising her so there was the full backlash to curvy wife guy then the third phase that we're in is in some ways the most meta phase, which is the, uh, you know, novelty music video release. And then that's been accompanied by this very meta tour where he is has been DMing with and giving interviews to the very bloggers who wrote the backlash posts two years ago and trying to sort of make nice with them and have these moments about like, what is the Internet even? Here's what I meant. Uh, and so that's where that's where we are with Curvy Wife Guy. Rachel, do you align with which part of this wave and counter wave do you find yourself spiritually aligning with when you think and watch uh, Curvy Wife Guy and oh his gosh. message of body positivity? For a second, I thought you were asking me if I aligned with Curvy Wife Guy, and I was going to be like, wow, I'm low-key offended. Um, but Right. No. <laughs> um, no. I would say I probably most align with the second wave backlash against the original BuzzFeed post which was very much along the lines of A, his wife is what she describes herself as an in-betweeny size which means you can still kind of shop at trade size stores. It's like at the upper end of the range. And then this very cynical ploy for publicity except now he's saying that he doesn't actually want publicity. He doesn't understand why people are talking about him. It's very, I think I identify with the bloggers that he's trying to set up meetings with that still don't believe <laughs> what he's doing. Well, so here's what's, here's what's weird to me about his whole thing is that it's all framed like everyone thinks I'm so weird for liking my wife, which is, and he, he you know, he talks about how in high, in the original post, he talked about how in high school, everyone made fun of him for like liking the type of woman that he liked. And it's just uh, all framed in what seems to me to be sort of the opposite of body positivity, to be so, in fact, grounded in the, like, societal norms that he says he's, like, breaking. He is just fully a creature of them. And it's even more apparent, I would say. What do you mean? It's like a protesting too much kind of thing. Um, It's like the... I just you mean he's so thoroughly absorbed the norms that he just like sees them everywhere and is totally defensive and paranoid yes. like he doesn't f- feel like he's embraced anything. Well, really. right. I mean if he had just said look how beautiful my wife is or whatever and just kind of left it at that instead of like pointing out like her stretch marks or whatever um 
I I think it would have been a different story. It would have felt more like a celebration. Or if he had like said, you know, I, I, I can't remember. Did he actually say, I think her stretch marks are beautiful? I don't think he did. He didn't actually celebrate exactly. He, he... Oh, he's all about the stretch marks. Like in his video too, he's always just like, it's like he practically has a fucking pointer. He's just like, like look at the stretch marks, like zoom in camera. I mean, he's really weird about the stretch marks. He's... He's all about them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that the the language, I mean, the music video is like obviously a total novelty item. And yet the language is just feels not like celebration. It feels like making fun. He like lists, you know, his wife's weight. He um, says, <laughs> they say less is more. I say more is great. She got a waist so big that her belt can't reach. So I call her James and the giant peach. Uh, I, the, it just feels mocking actually and um so the the music video is set like poolside and it's a it's his wife and a couple other women like dancing around in skimpy bathing suits and at the end they like all jump into the pool together and he's holding hands with his wife and another woman they're all jumping together and it just reminded me um of that scene in Shrill or that episode in Shrill where the um, Lindsay West show where she goes to like a body positivity pool party and really kind of like feels herself for the first time in a while or whatever. And that was so not mediated through a male gaze. Right. And this that music video just is like he's at the the pool party kind of like inserting himself in, in ways that just like bring that valence to it and it just he is so stuck in I think he is just so stuck in the worldview that he is saying bending over backwards to say that he's not stuck in and that's part of the problem with his whole shtick yeah I mean this is a non-starter for me I mean the whole it's like it's not that big a deal for a guy to like women of a certain size like have you ever been on a porn site like it's not like he's the first like he made to me he made, the way he talks about it makes it just seem like a fetish like it, it, it he would have been better off to say you know what I don't actually have a thing for women who are this size but like my wife is awesome so like that yeah. would be better for well, me than to to be like I just happen to like this kind of women like okay you know everybody has their thing that they like that's cool that's not positive that's just like male desire of a very particular kind so the thing this made me think about is body positivity in general I feel like we're in a confused moment about it like it's been picked up in ad campaigns and it's been you know people sort of embrace it but but what but what people are just have forgotten or are confused about what is body positivity and how is it different from fat acceptance and what is health and weight and the connection between all these different things just because it's getting digested in this fractured way. Do you guys feel that way about body positivity? Like you've like, do you have a clear sense of what what that means or what it should mean? No, I mean, it, it does feel like it's become almost a marketing term, right? Um, my mm-hmm. understanding, and if I'm wrong, listeners write in and correct me, my understanding is that it's an evolution of the fat acceptance movement, um, which came around in the 60s and 70s as a sort of like radical politics um, to say that uh, overweight people should not be marginalized by society, that, you know... Or discriminated against. Discriminated against, right. right? That, like, you know, that and that saying, you know, it's bad for your health was just sort of a way of covering up prejudice. Interestingly, the guy who started this sort of, like, national organization for fat acceptance did it because he 
didn't like the the way people talked about his wife. So actually, curvy wow. wife guy <laughs> comes from a long line of of men. Uh, doing this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like every brand now, right? Like, you know, Everlane, like they all they all have, um, you know, they all show a plus size model alongside just sort of a regular old size zero model, whether or not their clothes actually fit that size of a woman or not, which is kind of an interesting moment. It's like, it's like a way of telegraphing what kind of brand you are. You are the kind of brand that accepts all women. Definitely. I feel like there are two prongs of what the body positivity movement is today, which is the one that's rooted in the radicalism of the 60s, where it's very much like this is a systemic issue that we're trying to fix. This is not about like personal feelings. I don't care how you feel about my body. I just want to be able to go to the doctor and get prescribed the proper medication and be taken seriously. And then there's the side of the body positivity movement that is personal which is equally important but is more of a one-to-one kind of like I want to feel desired like I want to feel loved I want to be able to see myself represented in a positive way and I think that most movements have those two different prongs but the way that the second prong in the body positive movement has been co-opted by corporations has made it like the aim of it very diluted and it makes it very hard to tell what's a cynical grab for people's eyes um, and what's actually genuine. Yeah. Like what's a just like, I want to sell more clothes to more people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you hear, I think it was either I heard or read an interview with Lindy West talking about sort of reframing her own vision of her own body where it wasn't just like, I tolerate this. I'm going to like want people to accept it. But she was actually like, no, my roles are actually beautiful. If you sit and look at them, there is something really lovely about the flesh, um, which I think is is more in the, uh, the radical version of that, like following in that lineage than the sort of like corporate dove ad, like, you know, smooth skin, like just like a slightly different version of the hourglass. But I'm interested in... I think it's a more recent thing that we were reading about, which is the body neutrality movement. Um, yes, thank you. Yes. Which actually yeah. resonated with me because I was like, oh, this is how I think about my body, which is like uh, it it has you like you don't have to do some sort of force. I love it. I love it. I love it. And you don't like dwell in like I hate it. But it's more like, you know, this body like lets me do a lot of things. It's kind of great. Like. You know, I can I can run, I can skip, I can I can do all kinds of things on my body. And so I am like mainly neutral on it. Um, I feel like that is a more realistic thing than sort of making everyone be like, my body's the best thing in the world always. Because even if you are Giselle Bundchen, you probably don't feel that way every single day. Right. Like, but just having a sort of equanimity about like what it actually is, how it functions for you, what a gift it is to have one is, I think, like kind of a nice place to land. I'm so with you. I love the body neutrality movement because I think the other way just makes everyone neurotic. Like, I love my body. But what if you don't <laughs> right. at this moment love your body or have particular feelings about it? And why does everything have to be about the body, you know? And it's like – and if you're – if it's, it's body neutrality, you can almost be – Anyone. I mean, the problem with body positivity is it's it's it's, it's a pretty narrow band. It's like you're not seeing people who are disabled being featured in ads or people whose bodies are, you know, emaciated in a way that we don't like. It's just like like you said, it's just like a different sort of iteration of the hourglass. And so so it's actually really, really narrow, whereas body neutrality feels like actual acceptance to me. Like I have this body. Sometimes it serves me well. It does lots of good things, you know, just 
stop looking at it so much. Mm -hmm. Like, stop focusing on it. You know, sometimes I like to dress up. Sometimes I like to wear my my glamping (laughs) glamping jumpsuit situation (laughs) that really does nothing for me. But whatever, you know, it's a body. Yeah. I'm really into that. I think it might be easier to be body neutral over the age of 30 or whatever. Like, I do think that it's probably hard to be 20 years old and feel body neutral. Like, just so much... You know, like I I just have these distinct memories of that phase of life where like so much of life is about inspecting your own body and other people's bodies and figuring out how your body fits in the pantheon of bodies. And uh, yeah, I wonder I wonder if there are 20 year olds who are able to practice it. I think it's extremely hard as someone who is in their <laughs> early 20s yeah. to practice body neutrality. Because, I mean, so much of your life is kind of predicated on, like, what you look like. And I think when you're in your 20s, you kind of feel like you should have it all put together. And part of that is having, like, the perfect body. Well, that's depressing. We can't and do you feel like So then do you feel like images of different size bodies is actually helpful? Oh, Like, 100%. if there is no no escaping into body neutrality, then maybe it's good. Although I prefer the Lena Dunham way. It's just, like, put your body out there, make your clothes too small, it's my body, deal with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but do you, then do you feel like um, it is helpful, actually, to, to sort of expand, to at least even mildly expand the range of sizes that we put under the rubric of beautiful and desirable? Definitely. I think that there was someone... Um, who said that the politics of desirability are very important to a lot of people, and I think that it's fair to want to be desired. And I think that if you can see a body that looks like yours and say, I think that body is beautiful, why don't I think my body is beautiful? It kind of, that like probing that disconnect, I think helps a lot in terms of fixing negative self-talk versus being like, my body can do this. Because especially when you're like 24, 25, you're not really thinking about what your body can't do because <laughs> you haven't dealt with it yet. And so I think that body neutrality, like, I think it's something to aspire to. But I think that kind of being grounded in yourself like that is necessarily easy when you're like in your early 20s. Okay, so just a last question on the early 20s situation. <laughs> Can you imagine a desi- like a sense of desirability that that stands apart from actually being desired by people? In other words, can you like the this is like the Lindy West Trill moment. Like can you imagine feeling desirable but but that it's a little disconnected from the actual mechanics of desire, which is like a man or a woman or whoever finds me desirable, like desires me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't actually know if I can. I don't know if, like, I guess my idea of desire very much, there's another person on the other side of it, you know? Like, it's not just, like, you desiring your own body or, like, you being able to, there's, there seems to be, like, a give and take there. I don't know if I can necessarily separate it from, like, the, in the heterosexual realm from, like, men, you know? All right. Well, listeners, if you have any experiences with body positivity that you want to share with us, please do that at thewaves at slate.com. We would love to hear from you. All right. We continue our discussion about bodies, but this time it's for men. Plastic surgery for incels. How many bones would you break to get laid? It's a fabulous headline in a New York Magazine feature that focused on one Dr. Barry Epley, who specializes in facial surgery for men. Without really knowing it, he has become a celebrity in the world of incels, involuntary celibates, 
men who hate women, largely because women won't sleep with them, but also the men kind of hate themselves and are obsessed with their own physical appearance. So what this story reveals is a kind of underworld where men behave like the worst stereotype of women, cruelly dissecting each other and themselves body part by body part. Um, Rachel, what struck you about the, the, the you know New York Magazine article and many articles about incels do a good job of dissecting the way that they talk about each other? Like what struck mm-hmm. you? about that, the way the men are talking about themselves and each other? I think the way that it strips down all kind of cultural context to biology kind of interested me the most in that they're very much along, this is the like golden ratio of facial features. This is like your skull size to be this size, your jaw should have this specific angle. The way they stripped it all down to like math and statistics, that's kind of predicated on nothing and if it's predicated on anything it's like white European ideals the fact that they can't seem to conceive of an idea of beauty that goes beyond um like a da Vinci (laughs) painting or something is very weird yeah I agree I mean I'm always shocked it's like it's like if 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 you took like (laughs) that Amy you know that Amy Schumer compliment comedy skit do you guys <laughs> yeah, have any yeah. memory of that <laughs> where like the women are like you look so cute and the woman's like no I look I look like a dog like I look like a cow like if I was in India people would be worshipping me like it's this whole sort of like self-hating parody and then one woman she just says thank you and then like everything explodes and it becomes apocalyptic it's really really funny <laughs> but it's it is it is like the that thing that women do but with a kind of unbelievably cruel precision Mm. you know like there are just jokes about men measuring their penises or whatever but it's like that to your entire body like you're no it's so literal like i spend a lot of time also on male bodybuilding sites um (laughs) for for work right for work (laughs) no ew not to like look at the dudes ew no that's not why i spend i'm i I, you know okay i'm 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 happy to like look at hot men but that's not why i'm on the sites it's because i really feel like all of like current america can be explained on bodybuilding sites there's a lot of politics on there there's just like a lot that goes on Mm -hmm. but one thing is this weird male-on-male gaze. It's a really closed universe of men. It feels new to me. It's just like this totally closed universe of men talking to other men, but in a kind of dude way, a very literal-minded, statistically, but all based on bullshit, as you said, Rachel. Like, this biology is not, like, proven and doesn't really exist in their whole sort of, like, sexual economics. I mean, there are lots of books about sexual economics, but they really take it, like, a little too literally. Um, But this sort of male-on-male dissection feels weird and new. To me, And in the bodybuilding sites, you really see the mathematics, you know, like breakfast is plan A, like everything is all normal things are divided into sort of like numbers and parts. It's just really, really weird. Mm -hmm. Um, And and Noreen, what did you so 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 what how did you personally respond to the plastic surgery part? Because I was really closely monitoring my own response and thinking like, why am I so weirded out by this? Like, this is just like kardashians on a tuesday you know but somehow having this guy talk about it seemed sick and i don't know why can you just describe a little bit like what was the interaction between him and the doctor well the doctor i mean again claims that he 
does not know that these men are all come seeking him because they found him on incel forums. Um, but the doctor like does these really sort of out there surgeries. He is the doctor who like made turned a woman into a human Barbie doll. That was his original claim to fame. Um, so he will he will give them a square jaw and then he will do um, many sort of follow ups. Um, some of which I think is maybe just like standard if you're doing that kind of surgery. Uh, maybe it's hard to get right. But also these men, it seems like uh, when their lives don't change, you know, they have this surgery, they've gone through all this, they have a new jaw, and suddenly the world is not open to them. They decide it must be like the fault of the surgery, like there's a tiny bump on the nose that they need to get fixed. And then, you know, life will open up to them. I mean, I think I I felt um, sad for them, you know, and sort of weird. I don't typically feel a lot of empathy for insults, right? And that's not the way that they are presented in our culture. They are often written about um, because of their misogyny and because, you know, people like Elliot Rogers, who, uh, you know, famously massacred people was an incel, right? So that is reputation of incels. And I think the sort of genius of this piece was that it, in in showing the bizarre lengths that they would go to, it weirdly humanized them um, or made you just like understand the pain that they're going through, maybe. Um, I mean, it's just it's the bummer of it is how delusional it is. Right. It's it's applying the logic of the male gaze to themselves, which is actually if they're trying to sleep with women, that's frankly just not how women think about it. Right. And so, um, you know, most women, probably not all, but most women like might might not be quite so focused on the square jaw as these guys are. And so rather than thinking about other ways to change their lives and sort of, you know, uh, change aspects of their personality and open up so that they could have actual relationships with women, they've fixated on these millimeters, this like very fixable thing, right? Um, And that's just the tragedy of it is that they're unable to see the real reasons why they are lonely, right? Because I think this is more about feeling lonely than it is about feeling undesirable but maybe I'm being too charitable to these guys what do you think I think it's interesting that they turned from acknowledging how shallow the world is and instead of kind of pushing back against that which is what the body positive movement is attempting to do they just were like I'm gonna fix myself and Mm -hmm. then women will like me and I think I think loneliness is a part of it but I think they also want a very specific woman to like them Mm -hmm. and so I don't have as much sympathy for them and that I mean, they're like, I'm going to get this jaw surgery and I'm going to sleep with all these hot blonde women. And it's like you want a specific type of woman and you don't think any other woman is attractive. And that's why you think that you have to look like this very specific form of attractiveness to be able to get this woman. Well, it's so disconnected from reality, right? Like it is just like it bums me out. I, I do feel like, you know, you read all these studies about how no one's having sex or relationships anymore. And it does feel like because they've, for whatever reason, they the message that they're getting from the culture is that you can only have sex with like super hot people and no one else. And that like, it has to happen in this one way. And it has to be totally like, insane and like out of a teen movie or whatever. And that any other way is no good. Right. So I think like, in that way, they are sort of ill served by the culture just as much as women are actually like it, it it does feel like Hannah it did it did also feel like an end of men kind of thing right that that now men are the ones getting surgery to make themselves feel desirable that just does feel like 
a reversal that is not unrelated to the economic and power shifts that you have written about. And some of these men talk about that, that like uh, women don't, you know, like women can be choosing now because they have money and they can like they have jobs and they don't like need a man anymore. And, and that's where a lot of their anger comes from. Yeah, a lot of time when I I have also talked to many incels in my life because I did an Invisibilia story about incels and I interviewed you know many many incels before I landed on the one that I ended up featuring because I was looking for an incel who was trying to leave inceldom, mm. um, and it is um, I I spend a lot of time thinking about how much of incels is is sort of like a cultish closed world with its own loop of dysfunctional logic that has absolutely nothing to do with the 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 the, the outside world you know and the inter- it's it, it is one of those corners where the existence of other people who will uh, echo your worldview is incredibly dangerous because the worldview is, as you said, Rachel, it's like mathematical and it's world explaining and it gives you an explanation, you know, it gives you a kind of total explanation for your misery, which feels pat. Like I, I the origin stories of a lot of incels goes like this. I posted a picture of some hot guy and their version of a hot guy is like gross. It's like no one that any of us would, would look <laughs> twice that you know it's just like a campy kind of model guy named Sergio or whatever (laughs) and and then they have Sergio say increasingly offensive disgusting things to the women who contact him and then they they watch as the women like titter and laugh and they're like ha 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 you're so funny and do you want to go on a date and then that and then so they all run experiments like this in order to prove to themselves that the only thing that matters is what a guy looks like um and then then that confirms their notion that there's like a biological hierarchy and they're at the bottom of the biological hierarchy and they have all sorts of you know millions of animal world analogies to this you know the pack in which just like one guy gets all the one guy by which i mean like one lion gets <laughs> gets all the she lions and everybody else is left out. So so they really it's like a, it's like economic, it's biological, like they just have a really closed loop of logic. Um but and I think you're right. Wait, Maureen. what's They're, appealing about that to them though? Is it just that like the universe can be ordered and and like that it's a yeah. game to play? No, I th- it's appealing because they are not having any luck dating at that second and it's an explanation it's not their fault and i think it's like really it's really difficult i mean whatever you guys know it's like difficult it's difficult if you're i find that most of them are i don't know what they look like because there's a war and inceldom to present yourself as ugly as possible so i've i in my conversations with incels often i'll skype i was skyping with them and they wouldn't show me their faces but they would flash a picture of their face really quickly um and and send me a picture of someone who looked you know kind of deformed and i was like i I, you can never tell if that's really them or not Mm -hmm. because there is this kind of arms race of like i'm uglier than you are um so so i think what's appealing about that is just it it explains these shifting dynamics which are which are have to do which sure they do have to do somewhat with women you know having more power and money and choice but I I don't really I mean you know there's there's all kinds of women doing all kinds of things like a lot of it is them going through a phase in their lives where they're just too scared 
to put themselves out there or some of them are on the spectrum or for various reasons do genuinely have trouble connecting. And that's really, really painful. So it's nicer to enter into this community, at least for some period of time. And you do think it's a phase for most of them or like does it calcify into something, you know, more permanent for some? Right. Like that's the. Real yeah, question. I'm sure for some people it calcifies into something more permanent, but it's not. Um, but a lot of times it is. There have been studies done on incels and I no longer have the numbers in my head. I'm sorry. But the people have studied like what because they're not all white guys. That's the other thing. Like a lot of them are because the way the dating market it works. It'll be like East Asian guys who, I mean, um, um, uh, like there was, anyway, it was, it was, uh, hold on. It'll be like Asian guys show up a lot in the incel scene or people who have, you know, have been like acculturated to believe they will have trouble dating, even if they will or won't kind of in their early 20s. And then they do tend to get out of it after their late 20s when dating isn't so like, like heated up and, and meat markety feeling. How much of it, the meat market field, do you think has to do with dating apps? Oh, I think a lot. I mean, I think, don't you think? Like, dating yeah. apps are so, like, the, the it's not all dating apps, but I think, like, Tinder style, mm-hmm. like, where it's just literally your face, yeah. you know? Uh, this is slightly off topic, but I want to recommend an episode of Invisibilia where you guys went into that topic of... of um, Asian men not being desired even by Asian women. And uh, you told the story of someone who like a woman who tried to break down her own desire and like figure that out. So if anyone is interested in in sort of these dynamics, the great episode of Invisibilia. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, that's true. Actually, both that episode and the next my episode about empathy address this topic because the next episode is about incels. I had this crazy idea that I was going to do the incel dating show because after Alex Manassian drove in a van and killed women on the street and called himself an incel, uh, there was this there was this heated moment on the incel sites of people trying to get out of the life. Like, help me, help me. Like, how can I get out of this mentality? Because it does, you know, there are people who spend hours and hours on these sites, and so they just get kind of infected with this mentality. Um, And so I was looking for an incel who was trying to date. Um, Yeah, so the two episodes are a very offensive rom-com and the end of empathy. So did you guys get the sense, reading the New York Magazine thing, that this was an extreme case of, like, an outlier freak, which is what I said I always think about with incels? Or did you feel like there was something... Like we have moved into some new era with men and their bodies and how they see their bodies and how they interact with their bodies. I think it's a little bit of both. Right. Um, So there you know, it's not it's not just one guy in the New York Magazine story. It's a few um, who actually do go through with it. Um, So I think that's one subset. But then in the sort of more mainstream world, you do see men paying a lot more attention to the way they groom themselves and the way they take care of their bodies. And it does. Um, you know, it's a much healthier version than this, but it, it's like on a spectrum al- alongside it, right? To be someone who's like, you know, kind of orthorexic and, and obsessed with like, you know, doing these precise exercises to get these precise ornamental muscles is not unrelated. And then there yeah. were the numbers in the New York Mag story, those like um, plastic surgery for men has gone up like 300% in the past two decades or something like that. So I do think it's part of a larger shift. Yeah. 
I mean, is that good or bad? What do you think, Rachel? Like, is it even the playing field? It's like, okay, good. Well, you got to spend your money on plastic <laughs> surgery too. Or, I mean, there's definitely a part um, of me that was petty and just like, well, women have been doing this forever. You're just kind of getting on our level. You're being subject to the kind of same because they seem to be performing for men. They're not talking to women. And so you're being subject to the same male gaze that women have been subject to forever. But the point should not be that everyone is subject to this terrible male gaze that's unattainable. I think that a part of me is vindicated and the other part of me is like, this is terrible. And also so many of the kids in these stories are so young. They're like 17, 18, 19 online. And getting that stuff out of your head as you get older is only going to get harder. Yeah, I mean, everyone's just internalizing the wrong message about what makes people attractive, right? Like, I was thinking this and should have just said it in the in the first episode, but it isn't really people's bodies that make them attractive. Like, sure, that's a part of it, but it's a small part of it. Like, men should be watching, like, Cary Grant movies and not getting plastic surgery. That That is the answer to solve the incel crisis. Just, like, send everyone some screwball comedies and, and teach them to be charming again. Make America charming I think again. it's like everything bad is Tucker Max's fault, I swear. <laughs> it's like the pickup artist has just had such a long tail. It's just like it keeps morphing and turning into different, different dysfunctional iterations of dating culture. Yikes. Um, all right. Well, uh, listeners, send us your thoughts about men and plastic surgery or even about men doing things to their bodies the way women have done forever. How should we think about that? You can write us at thewaves at slate.com. We would love to hear from you. Yes. Okay. Fleabag. Amazon Prime is airing the last and final season of Fleabag, British actress and TV writer Phoebe Waller-Bridge's show about a messed up young woman whose obsession with sex in season one gets her in the saddest kind of trouble. Actually, I don't like the way I summarize that because one comes before the other. It's like first she gets in trouble and then she has an obsession with sex to kind of get her out of trouble. Anyway, it's complicated um, what is going on with her. Uh, And I think, uh, anyway, it's complicated what's going on with her. In season two, Fleabag still has her cafe. She's still kind of aimless, still very interested in sex, though in a weird and different way. Only this time, a lot of the drama revolves around her and her sister, Claire, who's a type A, uptight, neurotic, and has a warm, cold relationship with Fleabag. Noreen, I feel like, Rachel, I don't know if you have sisters, but I feel like because Noreen has so many sisters, I want to make her talk about Claire, especially since she has a sister named Claire. I know. Like, I know. What, how would you describe the Claire of Fleabag? Like, and, and well, even before we get there, do you guys think I'm, is it correct to say that the drama revolves around her and her sister and that's what makes this season well, it is different but, in quality? It is, but that's not the obvious answer, right? The obvious answer is that the drama revolves around her and the hot priest who she wants to bang, right? But like the real, you've gotten to the heart of it is that the real thing is about the love story between her and her sister, um, which is what I think makes this season so wonderful. Yeah, I mean, they, I, I was obsessed with their sisterly relationship and it was very good in episode or in season one as well. They sort of, um, they have the sisters, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's, has the sisters going to this feminist lecture and um, the lecturer asks, you know, would any of you change, um, would any of you trade 10 years of your life 
for, uh, you know, the perfect body. And the two sisters are the only ones in the room who raise their hand. (laughs) (laughs) And and they just kind of look at each other. And I also love that scene because uh, Fleabag was wearing her sister's shirt and that she'd borrowed from her, you know, who knows how long ago and like only realized it when she got there, which is like if you have sisters and you steal their clothes, that is a very relatable thing. Um, So I think when... So Claire, so Fleabag is sort of this free spirit, insanely charming, walks into a room and gets all the attention, not sort of as stereotypically successful. Claire is, um, it turns out, a really big deal at her company. Um, She has a huge office. She uh, is married to... Is that true that she's a really big deal? I guess we're supposed to know that from the office because I was really surprised when we walked into that office. I was like, damn, who is she? I had no idea. Right. I felt like that was kind of thrust upon us that she was... You know, not just thought of herself as a big deal, but she seemed to be a big deal. Right, because she doesn't carry herself that way. She has zero swagger, right? Like she's she's always dressed in these sort of sheaths. And I don't know if she's actually wearing ballet flats, but spiritually she's wearing ballet (laughs) flats. Right. And she's um, always sort of self-contained and uh, Fleabag drives her nuts because uh, she's a screw up. She's messy. And yet she always kind of wins the day with like a funny joke that she can't make um, that Claire can't bring. Oh, my God. To the make. joke riff is so <laughs> yes. good. Like who steals. It's just like what you said about the shirts, except about the jokes. Is that what it's like between sisters where just like things worm their way into your head? Like you stole my joke. You stole my shirt. It's just this constant loop of like who has whose things and who who like just your, the, the kind of attentiveness to each other is really alarming. Yes. Well, I think that that is really real. You are super attentive to what your sister has that you don't have, what she may be copying from you, what you are copying from her. But what I love about it is that even when they're fighting, they like they're like they can be sort of um, aggressively combative with each other and then sort of back each other up. Right. They are fully a unit even when they are not. Um, And that was sort of the realest thing for me that they they can hate each other and still love each other which um it, it like i you know it can be that way in romantic relationships too but there is something particular about sisters that i think this captured super beautifully do you have sisters rachel i don't and so it was really funny when fleabag was like i just wanted to hang out as friends and claire was like we're not friends and then later she was like you're the <laughs> only person i'd run through an airport for right. and having that kind of relationship is so i have two brothers so i'm the only girl and so it's nowhere near it's a completely different kind of relationship. And so watching this was very interesting. And to hear people say that that's accurate, I've always kind of wanted a sister and wondered what it would be like. And a part of me is like, grateful I don't have one now. <laughs> no, and the, the other part of me is like extremely jealous. <laughs> yeah. No, I think with the thing, it's like having a sister is kind of like looking in a mirror, except you're like, no, 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 that's not me. Why are you acting that way? That's not what I'm like. Or you're like, oh, that's what I should be like, right? There's something about seeing part of yourself reflected back to you that I think that this show does a good job of teasing out. Um, But what did you guys think of the hot priest relationship? I definitely thought he was hot. Wait, can I just say (laughs) (laughs) You're saying he's hot. Just one, one more thing about the sisters before. I I have to say, so because we just saw the Fleabag, the monologue on Off-Broadway on which the original Fleabag was based. And it's like, to me, it's just like watching the projection of bleakness, which is related to the sister. Like the monologue is incredibly bleak, Mm -hmm. I thought. Bleaker than season one. Because in season one, like 
the people come alive, like the sister comes alive, the best friend comes alive. So she doesn't seem so completely alone. Um, and then, I don't know, I just thought it was in, in season two, like without being just obviously and in the usual way, redemptive and loving, the relationship with the sister is uh, it's along the trajectory of very redemptive and loving, mm. I thought. Like from the very first minute of that terrible dinner where you think Fleabag is going to ruin it. And we won't spoil too much, but I think we can just talk about the first episode where she covers for her sister in a way which is so unexpected and kind of demented, but also beautiful. So anyway, that's my last thought. about. I think it's just so important to how the whole season rolls out. So one thing that this season reveals that I don't think is a spoiler, but like helps to frame it emotionally is that you spend all of season one sort of thinking of her as this very alone person having kind of empty sex. Um, She doesn't even seem that connected to her boyfriend. I mean, they break up early in the season, but she doesn't seem like it was a super connected relationship anyway. She's just sort of this island, right? Um, Who's who's giving sidelong glances to the audience all the time. Um, And then in and she's lost her mother. She's lost her best friend. In season two, you sort of come to realize that part of the problem someone says to her later in the season is that she has she's better at um, love than just about anyone. But she just sort of doesn't have anywhere to put it right because the two people that she loved the most are gone. Um, and so I think part of her relationship with her sister is about figuring out, like, in the absence of this mother to whom they were very close and who seems to have resembled Fleabag, like, how do you reshape that relationship? And right. And like, in the absence of the best friend who probably took some of the energy that she the sort of sister love energy, like, how does she redirect that? Um, so it's it's that's sort of a lovely way of thinking of the Fleabag journey is that she's just like you think she's this broken person who can't love, but actually she's like really amazing at love oh i love that that's beautiful i just love the way that it made platonic love just as important as romantic love like the first season kind of i think centered around that and the second season as well yeah Yeah. although she has i mean so in the first season she has sort of empty sex and this season you see her fall in love which is kind of cool like you hadn't seen that before it sort of softens her yeah it's funny because the priest like the hot priest it's like makes God, she is so good at plot construction. It's just unbelievable how good she is because it sneaks up on you. Like she's just very good, even from her monologue of just kind of cracking it open, just kind of one tiny step at a time. She's like a real genius at that. Um, And like making it all make sense at the end, like even Killing Eve is like that, where it's just this improbable character. So you think it's just like madcap, we're going to throw these people together, but it's so not that. Like everybody is there for a reason, you know? So it almost like if you zoom out, you think, oh, well, that's you have to give her a priest who can't have sex. Like he, right. she's a person having empty sex. So you throw in the lap like a guy who she literally <laughs> he will not have sex with her. And you choose a priest. It's ridiculous. But it doesn't feel ridiculous. Right. It's like it started. It's it started from like a shrink telling someone like you always go after unavailable men. And you could see like, you know, the 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 gears turning and, and Phoebe Wellbridge thinking, who is the most unavailable man? <laughs> right. Like, right. yeah. And she's like, I want to fuck a priest. <laughs> right. Yeah. But Rachel, do you think it works? Like give if we dissect it that like if we write out the storyline like that, it's really <laughs> bad. But do you feel like in the actual unfolding, it's bad? No, I think it's really great. I think that 
the priest sees her in a way, and you can, t- and the he sees the way she glances at the audience, and it's something that no one. He breaks the fourth wall along with her. He's like, "What are you looking at?" And it's kind of frightening as an audience to watch him watch you and I think that the relationship works because it can't work in in a way I think that the fact that the relationship in a rational world can't work out is what makes them compelling as a couple what did you make of that fourth wall moment like was that a sign that he could go anywhere with her like that there wasn't she couldn't hide from him like what what was that she couldn't play her games with him like what was that moment because it seemed like again that was one of those moments that's a little bit of phoebe waller bridge genius it's like too much but it makes sense too Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's a sign that yeah he could go anywhere with her that if he so chose that they could do anything together and that they were like theoretically the perfect match for each other like he saw her in a way that no one else in her life does which i think makes the ending of the show even worse well i know i think it's more like um he just was paying attention that maybe she was sort of getting this distant look in her eyes but the rest of her of the people in her life had gotten used to her frankly being someone grieving and someone who was sort of behaving strangely a lot of the time and that maybe they didn't see it when she wasn't fully present and he met her at a time when she was a little more healed and so then it was more jarring to him when she sort of like like stepped back from present reality and went so far into her head right like I think that's what we assume is that it's like her going deeply into his her own head and like being not present and he just called her on it yeah do you guys feel like um season two without spoiling anything is redemptive like do you feel that that's the arc of it yeah I did I did and it's not redemptive in a traditional sense right like it's not gonna give you um sort of an obvious happy ending uh, but that's kind of what I like about it. Yeah, same. I think that her relationships that were, all of her relationships at the end of season one were broken. And I think that by the end of season two, I think when I saw the second season beginning, I was expecting that Fleabag was going to have to completely reinvent herself to kind of fit back into her family life, that she would have to kind of hide a part of herself. And I think that she changed, but not in a way that made her less of who she is. And I think that that was important that her family kind of came to accept her it's too bad there's not a season three i know she she knows yeah. when to go no out. i'm really happy there's not a season three. <laughs> i i have to say the thing i'm so grateful for the existence of phoebe waller bridge on this mm-hmm. earth because she manages a kind of reaching for human connection and a redemption that i can like fully embrace like in everything she does i have just no resistance to the way that she unfolds things and the way her character reaches and finds love it's just like whatever it is she's doing i have just no resistance to i think it's Mm -hmm. just like i can totally follow her through it because it feels just authentic and dark the the whole way through even as it's redemptive and i and i just love that i love that i really identify with it even the most like despicable characters on the show like martin claire's husband have like a moment where you're not like, okay, I guess he's fine, but you're at least like, I understand him more. And I think that she didn't necessarily have to do that with Martin, at least, because he was kind of terrible from the jump. But I think it's really great that she yeah. did. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, is anybody ever terrible? It's like Killing Eve, like Mm -hmm. the game that Killing Eve is playing, where the most terrible psychopath is just delicious. Like, that's just a really weird Mm -hmm. thing to do, you know? (laughs) And yet she totally pulls it off. (laughs) Anyway, listeners, if you have thoughts about Fleabag, please send them to us at thewaves@slate.com. All right, well, let's let's move on to recommendations. Noreen, you want to go first? Sure. I am going to recommend the novel Normal People by Sally Rooney, which has gotten a lot of attention. Um, so I'm really just adding my voice to the choir. Um, Sally Rooney is just re- really talented at painting portraits of people. Um, so this time it's two teenagers, Connell and Marianne, who... Uh, go to high school together um, in their sort of small town in County Sligo. I'm on the Wikipedia page. I couldn't remember what county it was Um, in County Sligo, which is sort of like the countryside in Ireland. And Connell's mom cleans house for Marianne's family. They end up having a romance and he sort of uh, is embarrassed of her at school. And then they both go away to Trinity College Dublin, where the tables turn because Marianne is rich and at an elite university, um, things change. So it's a portrait of a very particular relationship and also the way class works in college. And it is uh, just an engrossing read. So Normal People by Sally Rooney. Noreen, you missed, you were not here on the episode where, thanks to my jealousy of you in a sisterly fashion, I started a book club. Oh. Because I was so jealous that you were always like, I read this book and this in my book club. We read this. And I was like, why does no one invite me to a book club? So I just started my own damn book club. And the first book we read was Normal People. Oh, um, I didn't know that. So, Oh, cool. Yes, What'd you yes, think? Yes. Yes. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I love her. I mean, I think she's great. She was in D.C. and I'm sorry I missed her. Um yeah, she just it's like you said, she has she she's just like such a close observer of human relationships and power and class and she sneaks in so much into um she she's very much stays on an intimate landscape, but she's she she like there's a lot in there. There's a lot of sort of like class, race, unfold you know, mm-hmm. marriage. There's just a lot in in her dynamics. I was dubious about the ending, but I love the book. Yeah, I I agree. I'm interested to see what she does next when she sort of moves beyond the college years as a writer. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, I'm going to recommend something very on brand, but off as a recommendation, but which I've been playing around with all week. It's called She. It's the Search Human Equalizer. It's a Chrome extension which equalizes search results for a world not determined by men. And so, for example, if you Google schoolgirl, like you end up getting a lot of porn in a normal <laughs> Chrome, like you end up getting pornish style anime images. But if you have this Chrome extension, she, you actually get schoolgirls. Um, it's, it's such a, it's such an interesting thing to play around with. Or for example, if you Google CEO, like you will get a, you will get a, you know, it's not that there are a lot of female CEOs, but there are a hell of a lot more than will show up in a normal Google search. So it's a search engine algorithm that kind of the corrects biases because we've talked about on this show many, many times my, you know, about how algorithms are, you know, how algorithms recreate bias. So there are now not just this one, but lots and lots of attempts to to correct those biases. But this one is really, really fun um, to just 
to just through she type in the normal things that you would search for and see how the results look different and then ask yourself when you see those results like what does that do to your mind and your impression of the world and what men do and what women do it's it's really great it's extremely fun to play around with it's super interesting and you can Mm. find it at she transforms us.com it's very fun to play around with uh okay rachel what do you have um, so with the launch of Booksmart, a lot of people have been talking about kind of the dearth of coming of age movies for black girls. And so I want to recommend a 1997 movie called East Bayou, starring a very young Journey Smollett, um, Samuel Jackson and Lynn Whitfield. It's about a girl whose father is kind of this town like Paragon. Everyone loves him. He's like the town doctor. And basically, as the movie goes on, you see that their life isn't everything that it turns out to be. There's this element of like Southern Gothic. There's elements of like witchcraft because it's set in Louisiana. And it's just a really amazing underrated movie that I watched a lot growing up. And so I think it's just like, as we talk more kind of about like coming of age narratives and kind of who's represented, I think East Bayou is like one of the best movies ever. What's the basic plot? What sounds interesting? What is it about? Basically that um, Samuel Jackson is a well-respected doctor in this town in Louisiana and you find out that he's been cheating on his wife and that's kind of the basic premise of the plot and then his daughter finds out and all these events kind of revolve around her father being not the man that she thought he was and how she deals with that and how her family deals with that and how her sister deals with that. It's also a a movie about sisters. Oh. Ooh, excellent. It sounds great. Well, that is our show for today. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Danielle Hewitt, production assistant, Alex Barish. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. If you guys want to get in touch with us, you should email us at thewavesatslate.com or tweet at us at Hannah Rosen, at Noreen Malone. And what are you, Rachel? Uh, hey, Danae, H-E-Y-Y-D-N-A-E. That's right. I remembered it was not Rachel Hampton. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Um, <laughs> So tweet at any of us with, uh, with, with your thoughts, your recommendations, and we will include them on a future show. For Noreen and Rachel, I'm Hannah Rosen, and The Waves will be back next week. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.